Hello, and welcome to the RCC Weekly Sermon Podcast. This week for our Easter service, Pastor Kenny taught from Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49, how our faith is built on who God is, what God has done, and what God has promised. You guys can find your seats. Happy Easter, everybody. If you guys want to open up your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. And while you guys do that, I'm going to tell you a little Easter story. But don't worry, it's not cheesy, like it doesn't have any Easter bunnies or anything like that in it. This story this morning is about three millennial mice and a biker gang called the Wolves of Anarchy. Once upon a time, there were three little mice. The first mice, he lived in his mother's basement, little millennial mice. He liked to eat edible brownies, he liked to order Taco Bell from Postmates, and he liked to play video games, and that was pretty much what had come of his life. And, and he was getting to the age where his mom was worried about him, and so she kicked him out, and she said, you're now on your own, you need to find your own place to live. Well, he looked around his mother's basement, and all he could find was a few cardboard boxes and a bunch of Taco Bell wrappers, and he stole his sister's hot glue gun, he went in the backyard... And he crafted a house out of these items. The next millennial mice was a go-getter. He was, he was busy building his business and wasn't able to uh, find the time to build his own house. And his mom also said, you need to go find your house, son. And so he ordered one on Amazon Prime. <laughs> and it was really just this fort. And when it came, it was just a couple sticks and a couple of tarps. But he didn't have time to do anything else, so he built this house out of sticks and tarps from Amazon Prime. And yet there was another millennial mice who diligently, like most millennials do, looked up on YouTube how to build a house. He went to Home Depot and he constructed this house the right way, the way he learned on YouTube. Well, as you guys know, probably following along with the story that you're more familiar with, The wolves of anarchy show up at all of their houses, this biker gang. And long story short, the two first millennial mice ended up missing and on a milk carton. And the biker gang had bacon on everything for the next two weeks. And the the third millennial mice, Mouse, who built his house based on YouTube instructions, he went on to live a prosperous life. And this little piggy had a prosperous career in law enforcement. (laughs) And this is a cheesy story, I realize this, for Easter. But the reason why I tell you is because when we look at Luke 6, especially the end of this famous uh, teaching that Jesus gives called the Sermon on the Plain, we're going to see that Jesus talks about what it looks like to build your house, not with the right building uh, materials, but on the right foundation. And so let's turn to Luke chapter 6 and see what Jesus says. Verses 46 uh, through 49, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my word, and acts on them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, And laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. 
But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the river crashed against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the destruction of that house was great. And so the the teaching of Jesus is, is very simple. We should build our lives on a firm foundation. Amen? What foundation you build your life on it matters. And Jesus specifically says that, that some of these, they build their foundation and what they do is they come to see Jesus. They come to see Jesus and they listen to what he says and, and they obey him. They come to see Jesus, they listen to what he says and they obey him. And this is the, this is the analogy. These are the ones who have this strong foundation. And if you were to spend time thinking through what does this look like and reading through the New Testament, I would, I would submit to you that what you're going to find is what Jesus is saying is these people built their house on the gospel. They built their lives on the gospel, which essentially is this. The gospel is all about who God is, what God has done, and what God has promised. And so Jesus is reminding us that we should be people who build our lives, build our faith on who who God is, what God has done, and what God has promised. And so on this Easter morning, I want to spend some time walking through what this might look like in our lives. And the first one is this, and it's the first thing in your notes if you're a note taker, is we ask the question, who is Jesus? If we're going to build our lives on who God is, on who Jesus is, then we should ask this question, Who is Jesus? People have been asking this question since he showed up 2,000 years ago, and they still argue about it today. Some people say that the New Testament church, the church of our day, has made up some things about Jesus. Like it's been questioned, did Jesus even claim to be God? Well, interesting, if you study the facts, you could go back into the first century and you see lots of writings, but one particular is kind of interesting. This guy named Josephus, not a Christian, he was a Jewish man who was a Roman citizen. It was hired by the Roman government to, to record the history of, of these Jews. And this Josephus records this about Jesus, whom he, he, he doesn't follow. He's not a Christian. He said, Jesus was a man from Galilee who claimed to be God and was performing miracles. A non-Christian saying, this is Jesus who did claim to be God and was performing miracles. More recently, C.S. Lewis, if you guys like The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis was a great author, writer, uh, Christian theologian. And he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And in that book, he said, we shouldn't be foolish enough to be like those people who say Jesus was a good person or a good spiritual mentor. He said, Jesus, the things that Jesus did, the things that Jesus said, either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, he was nuts, or he was who he said he was, which was the Lord. C.S. Lewis would surmise Jesus is the Lord or he's nothing at all as a good teacher. And interesting, Jesus asked this question to his disciples. He he had 12 that followed him faithfully for three years before he died. And one time late in this ministry, towards towards the cross, he's in in this far off kind of area. They went out of the way to this area uh, called Caesarea Philippi. 
And Jesus asks his disciples this very question, who do people say that I am? We find it in Matthew 16, uh, verse 13 through 18. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that, that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You're going to build my church on this foundation. What does that mean? The church has argued about that over the ages. The Roman Catholic Church will often say that what Jesus was saying is that he was going to build his church on Peter. And they like that because they feel like they're the descendants of that ministry. Most theologians, though, read this exegetically. And what we see is it's not actually Peter who he's going to build this house on, but the confession that he made of who Jesus is. He's going to build his house. The foundation will be on who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. And when we say Messiah, that's a very Jewish sounding word. Often in our our English speaking churches, you'll hear this, Lord and Savior. We're talking about the same thing. That Jesus is Lord and Savior. And when we say Lord and Savior, He's Savior from our past sins. He saves us from ourselves. He saves us from the sins of our past. Not only that, he saves us from the sins of our present. How many of you guys uh, woke up this morning and you have been sinless since? (laughs) And he also saves us from every sin that we'll ever commit. He's our Savior. And he's our Lord. He's he's, he's now, from the time we, we commit our lives to Jesus, he's now the king. He's now the master. He's now the one we follow. And so you notice that Jesus says, all those who come to me, because they know that I, they believe that I'm a Messiah, that they've, 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 they make that confession, I'm Messiah, and they hear my voice, and they obey. They make me Lord and Savior, in essence, is what Jesus is saying. This is the foundation of our faith. And now, many have argued with, 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 with one theologian who, who said this, It's A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's foundational. And I think there's some truth to that. But the other side of that, and the argument would be, it is important what we say about Jesus. But what's even more important is, does Jesus know us? Does Jesus know us? Are we written in the book of life? At one point, Jesus says to some, he'll enter into the kingdom of God and he'll say, I knew you. And to others, he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. Knowing Jesus in the Bible is, is, is means that we have an intimate relationship with him. Do we have an intimate relationship with Jesus? This is the type of knowing that is required, just it's not enough to know information about who God is. It's more important that we know him as our God, as our Messiah, 
and we have a relationship with him. And so we might ask this question. How do we have a relationship with this Jesus? And that brings us to our second point in our notes, which is this, what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done. The Bible records that Jesus lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. There's Old Testament imagery back in the Old Testament. They needed a way to atone for their sin so they could have a relationship with God before Jesus even came. And they had a temple and they had this whole system, sacrificial system. And they would sacrifice a lamb. That was one of the pictures of of, of a sacrifice for the sins that keep us from God. And guess what? You couldn't just go pick out your worst sheep. You couldn't just pick out the lamb no one wants. Not the one that's hobbling around on three legs. Not the one that, that has issues and behavior issues or, or smells bad. Whatever it is, you had to pick one that was without a blemish. You had to have a priest come and, and look at your lamb and make sure that it was without blemish. And this was all leading up to this imagery that God is going to accept finally, once for all, the unblemished lamb, this Jesus who would die for our sins, yet was without sin. And Jesus died by crucifixion. We know this historically, and it's not fun to think about. We, th- we looked at it on, on Good Friday, that Jesus was actually beaten to within an inch of his life. Pontius Pilate brought him in. They didn't want to kill him. He thought, if I beat him bad enough, and then we take him out, then maybe people will show mercy on him. And then they bring this guy Barabbas, and they say, should we show mercy to Jesus? And they go, no, crucify him. They beat him to within an inch of his life. You have this man who's walked from Galilee to Jerusalem countless times, who was a carpenter for 30 years. He probably could handle himself, carry a stack of wood, and yet they put his cross on his back and asked him to walk only a mile. And he couldn't do it. He was that weak. From these beatings, and then they, they hung him to a cross. They nailed him to a cross. And crucifixion, the way that it works is you would be hung by a cross, either nails or ropes around you to this cross, and you would obviously gravity would pull you down. And you wouldn't be able to take a deep breath because your diaphragm wasn't engaging. So you'd have to lift yourself up, take a breath, and then come back down. And then lift yourself up. Well, I don't know if you guys have ever done like a push-up contest. You do push-ups. There comes a point when you cannot do any more push-ups. I don't care how much you want to. And that's how they would die. They would lift until they couldn't lift anymore. And then they would slowly suffocate. It was excruciating. That's where that word comes from. Excruciating is describing the pain and the suffering of the cross. And then he was pierced through his side by a Roman soldier. It says water and blood came out. If you're, I'm, I'm no expert. I have a little bit of, a, a, of some training in, in the medical field. So I, I, I believe that they pushed him in his side and he probably pierced his periocardial sac. And that's why water and blood are mixing. That's probably the best uh, explanation of what actually happened. But, but at the end of the day, Roman soldiers who were well-trained in execution. Crucifixion was invented around 500 years before Jesus by the Persians, and it was perfected by these Romans. And, and these executioners examined Jesus' body and said, without a shadow of a doubt, he's dead. They pronounced him dead. Experts at it. And then they wrapped him tight like a mummy and placed him in a sealed 
and guarded tomb. Some would say that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead because he never was really died. He, he, he was faking it. That's why it's important to understand there's no way that he faked it. He was dead, dead. And even if he wasn't dead when he came off the cross, think about it. The only hope that he would have had is if you had brought in a helicopter and brought him to a trauma center and he had surgeons and all those things. But no, they stuck him in a tomb that was airtight, barely any oxygen, wrapped so tight that he wouldn't have been able to breathe. And somehow, somehow he recuperated from that in three days, pushed open this tomb, beat up these Roman soldiers who were guarding it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, you have to have more faith than I have to believe that story. And yet, Hebrews 2, or 12.2 says, With the joy set before him, he endured all of this. Jesus was crucified on a cross. But we're here this morning to celebrate the resurrection, that Jesus, on the third day, he rose from the dead. After Peter confesses that Jesus is Lord, Mark's Gospel records that Jesus goes on to explain to them, before it even happened, that he would die on the cross, and that we'd rise again three days later. He explains it to his disciples. And now you, you might wonder, like, he already told them that it was going to happen. Why weren't they happy when he died? Why were they so alarmed? Jesus said a lot of really difficult things. You have to give him that credit. It wasn't until after the fact of all these things actually coming place that they put all the pieces together and it kind of resonated in their hearts and in their minds. And they knew that it was true. Later, Paul adds this perspective. He says, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through, 3, 1 through 3, he says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. Hashtag foundation. You made your foundation on this. And by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I pass on to you as most important, foundational, what I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And the resurrection, I would submit to you, is foundational for this. Why? Because people often pass away. People die. And, and they're often buried. But it isn't too often that we hear of a resurrection. And so the resurrection is the foundational fact by which we hinge our faith in this Jesus who we follow. And so we got to ask, is it true? It's a miraculous claim. It's an exceptional claim. Well, how do you, how do you even go about investigating this? Is, did Jesus... 2,000 years ago, was he, was he risen from the dead? How do we do that? I'm no expert on this, but I will tell you this. I grew up in the era where I did watch most of the OJ trial. And I've seen a few episodes of Law and Order in my day. And I watched, I binge watched on Netflix all of Making a Murder. So, so for these reasons, I submit that what you need to prove something is you need, some, you need some physical evidence, don't you? If you got physical evidence, and then you need some credible witnesses. And then in an instance where there's a lot of time that, that has gone by, you need the test of time. And these three things would be 
the way that you would go about investigating something. And so do we have physical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, Exhibit A, we have an empty tomb. We have an empty tomb. And by the way, if you were wondering, like, what could be the other possible reasons, the Bible really doesn't leave us many options. We have a guarded tomb. Did Jesus come back from this beating, open the tomb, beat up these Roman soldiers somehow, or, or come up with money, although he had none, and pay them off, right? There's, this, is a, this is a crazy idea to think that, that somehow, how, somehow he, he got out. Maybe they got the wrong tomb. No, the Bible records that, that this Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very prominent rich man, who already had a tomb, there would have been public record about it, he used his tomb. They knew exactly where the tomb was. It was guarded. On the third day, it was, the tomb was rolled away. And you have people now saying, I've seen him. This is the evidence we're left with. Physical ev- evidence. Also, I would submit in the physical evidence realm that the absence of, of evidence is sometimes a very valid point. There was no body recovery. All they needed to do, all the resources of the Roman Empire, all the Jewish people, all of these, all of these people against him, who said crucify him, crucify him against what, 12 fishermen? All of a sudden, they're able to, to disguise this body somehow, dispose of this body. Where's the body? We see in the scriptures that for 40 days after Jesus rises from the dead before he ascends, he is here on this earth alive. It wasn't just a a quick moment. For 40 days. We see the disciples who claim they saw him. They touched him. They spoke to him. Paul will later tell us that at one point there was up to 500 people in a public setting that, that saw Jesus. And he goes... And they're still alive, almost taunting them, like, go, go investigate this now if you want to. Because Paul knew it was true. What about credible witnesses? I submit to you this, the Bible records that the first people that Jesus appeared to were women. These women, Mary and a few other Marys and a few other, but Mary Magdalene being the prominent one in the story, show up at the tomb. And Jesus Jesus speaks to her, says, I'm alive. She sees angels, she sees sees Jesus, and then Jesus says, I want you, Mary, you go tell Peter and the other disciples what you saw and what you heard. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, this in, in, in our era, but back in first century, women did not have any credibility. In the court of law, a woman's testimony would mean absolutely nothing. These are people who are writing this gospel account to to encourage and and, and to give confidence to first century people that that Jesus rose from the dead. If they were making it up, the fact that they used women were the most foolish thing they possibly could have done. Why would they say these women who have no credibility, that's who I'm basing this credibility on, except for one reason, because they were just saying this is true. This is what happened. The apostles who were adamant that they saw Jesus, touched Jesus, what did they have to gain 
for holding on to this lie their whole lives. They were tortured. They were rejected. They were, they were killed. They were martyred. Why would anyone die for a lie like this, let alone 12 plus? Again, we, we see Paul recording that at one time, 500 people see Jesus. Because some people would say, oh, you know, maybe they were smoking some peyote or something like that, right? And they thought they saw him. Maybe, maybe it was just a weird vision. They were, they were driving and, you know, the sun was setting just right and they saw a mist and maybe that was Jesus, right? Maybe they saw him on a piece of toast like when they see Mother Mary, right? I don't know. But maybe, no, no, he's saying like 500 people. If 500 people do mushrooms in this room, right? They're not going to come, you're going to come up with some weird stories, but they're not going to be the same story, right? right? It's just all of the other, all of the other uh, 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 answers just don't fit. Jesus rose from the dead. Then we have the test of time. I don't know if you guys have done much in studying the, the history of the church. It's, it's wild, the fact that we are here today is unbelievable. I mean, we should not have made it this far with this religious stuff. There's only one explanation that I could think of. That Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive. And that he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He sent his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit is going to be building this church and people are going to confess that Jesus is Messiah and he's going to build his church and the gates of Hades and everything else that's happened in church history will not prevail. The test of time, the fact that we're here today, to me, is grand evidence of an alive Jesus and a moving Holy Spirit. I want to have the worship team come back up and we'll look at our last piece because the gospel is built on who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And what Jesus has promised. And I want to offer you four of my favorite promises that Jesus made. And the first one is this, is that Jesus promised that he won't leave us or forsake us. And if you want to study this later, it's in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, and the, I mean uh, 13, Hebrews 13. And the context is interesting when Jesus says that. He's talking about, be wary of people who build your house on wealth. Whose foundation is, is, is money. And of course, money's an easy one to poke at, and money's not a bad thing in and of itself. He's not talking about people who have money. He's talking about people who think that their security is, is settled with their portfolio. It could also be with fame, with having enough likes on Facebook or whatever, right? Social media. It could be it could be living up to whatever expectation you thought you were going to. We could build our house, our foundation on so many things. And he goes like this. Why don't you just build your foundation on Jesus? And here's why. Because he'll never leave you or forsake you. When the storms come, and they will come, everything else possibly you could lose. But the one thing that you'll never lose is that Jesus loves you. That he died for you. That he offers new life. And then he calls us to this foundation of being a people who confess that he is Lord. And then act like he is Lord by listening and obeying. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And then the second one is this. He isn't done saving souls. There was this 
debate or this complaint going on in the early church, which I think still is relevant today, 2,000 years later, if it, was, if it was 60 years later. And Peter hears about it, and people are saying, you keep saying Jesus is coming back, but, but year after year go by, and where is he? Like at 60, that's what they're saying, right? Now it's 2,000 years later. Well, Peter, Peter gives this answer in Second Peter. He goes, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. How many of you in this room know somebody who needs Jesus? Let's, let's on this resurrection Sunday, if nothing else, let this stir in you, Jesus is still passionately pursuing people. The people that you have on your heart, he has on his heart. Let's not grow weary in reaching out to our friends, our family, our coworkers, because Jesus is still on the move. If he's alive, we believe he's alive, he's still at work. The reason why he hasn't come back sooner is that he still has more people that he wants to gather. We're still in the gathering phase. And not only this, number three, is that he isn't finished working in and through us. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he goes, you can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the day either he comes back to get us or we go and see him face to face. Jesus is still at work. And later in Galatians, he tells the Galatians, he goes, do not grow weary in doing good. In other words, don't give up in doing good, for in due time you will reap a harvest. You go back to the Proverbs in the Old Testament, and and it says this, it says, a righteous man, how would you think a religious book would say, a righteous man is somebody who does all the right things, right? No, in Proverbs it says, a righteous man falls down many times but he gets back up. Remembering that Jesus promises that he's not done with you allows us to have the confidence to keep moving forward, to keep doing good, even when it feels like nothing is happening. And don't give up. And for those of you who are in a season where you've fallen down, you've been down for a while, his message to you this morning is get back up. Come to me. Start listening to my voice. Start obeying Watch what I'll do. And then the, perhaps the greatest of all these promises is this. He's coming back. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back. In John 14, 3, he says this. If I go away and prepare a place for you, that's what Jesus is doing right now. If you ever wondered, he's preparing a place for you. I mean, HGTV should be checking that out because I'd watch that, right? Trading spaces, got nothing on whatever Jesus is doing in heaven. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. So as we prepare our hearts to sing praise to this Jesus, I want to just ask a few questions that might help you, help you think through what is my application this morning. And the first one is this. What is the condition of your faith? You might have come in this morning from all different realms of of faith conditions. I just want to remind you this. Jesus can handle all of that. Jesus can handle any situation. 
Jesus can handle any heart condition. He just wants you to come. He doesn't want you to go do something and then come back. It's not the message. The message is just come as you are to me. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is able to raise you from whatever death you find yourself in right now. Thank you for listening to Remembrance Community Church Podcast. You can find all our weekly sermons online at remembrancecommunity.org forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.